0: We are uh, in our third week of Advent. I was talking to uh, Sam before the service, and uh, he said, Man, this is like our third week already of singing Christmas tunes. And it doesn't feel like it, but at the same time, it does feel like it. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, We are uh, continuing this Advent series in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Um, so you can turn there if you'd like. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and someone from our strike team would love to give one to you to read along. A lot of the scripture will be on the screen as well. And in this season, while we are uh, considering Advent, the, the, the idea there is the, the coming of Jesus to us, the Advent, the appearance of Jesus to be a light in our darkness. Uh, that is, Jesus comes to bring true joy and hope and peace into our brokenness. And he's promised that when he comes again, he will bring all of those blessings to their full and final completion. We live here in this time between the first advent, the first appearance of Jesus, and the second. And so as the carol says, the weary world rejoices at the coming of Jesus. We're looking at this passage in Isaiah 9. Um, where Isaiah is, is, is foretelling the coming of God's Messiah. And each week we're pulling a few verses from it and digging in, into it a little bit deeper, into one of the aspects of the reasons for our rejoicing here at Christmas. I opened a few weeks ago with the overall picture that, that Christ comes as a light into our darkness and that Advent is an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity... For the glory of Jesus to maybe hurt our eyes a little bit. To be willing to gaze long at Jesus, come to us, and and what that means to kind of shake us from our darkness, and maybe that we've been a little too comfortable in the dark, which is why the light hurts our eyes. Last Sunday, uh, Marty focused on verse 3, that there's a, a deep and abiding joy that is ours because of Jesus and, and that if we're lacking in joy... Marty posed the question, and I thought it was a good one. If we're lacking in joy, then perhaps there's something that we are missing as it relates to our understanding and the reality of the gospel. And he, he said last week that the passage is laid out kind of backwards, where we're called, God's people are called to have this joy, and then Isaiah says the reason why. right? God's people have this joy for... Our bondage is broken, and we'll cover that today in verses 4 and 5. And there's joy for to us a son is born, our prince of peace, verses 6 and 7, which we'll cover next week. But today we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 9. We're going to read the whole text here in just a moment and then focus in on 4 and 5. That there is freedom from oppression promised in Jesus that gives us true and legitimate hope and we're going to dig into this idea of hope, and here's why. Here's why I think hope is connected to the coming in Jesus. is because I think, in part, hope, the idea of hope, rises to the surface, frankly, because we need it. When we are overwhelmed, when we feel like we're kind of buried in the dark, or we feel stuck, it causes us to feel hopeless. I think this is probably the natural condition for most of us regularly. And in a season like this, I think we clamor for little glimpses of hope. And and in fact, we will attempt to anchor our weary hearts to just about anything that we feel will maybe bring us a little bit of light or a little bit of comfort. Because like someone who's drowning, right, we just reach out to grab anything that will keep us afloat. But there's an encouraging promise here, I think, in Isaiah 9 for us as well. That even though we often feel hopeless... And often that hopelessness is tied to our bondage, which we'll talk to here in a second, talked about here in a second. The reality is that Christ has come to free us from all our oppression. Capital A. Christ has come to free us from all our oppression and to cause us to live with hope in the freedom that we have in Christ. Let me say that again. We often feel hopeless as we are affected and remain in bondage. But Christ has come to free us from all our oppression to cause us to live with hope. So that's, uh, that's the general idea today. We're going to read first our text from Isaiah, and then we'll keep going. So if you want to read along, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, it'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> this is the, uh, God's word for us this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now we're going to focus this morning on verses 4 and 5, and what it meant for Isaiah to write that God's people have their bondage and oppression broken. It's the first part. What does it mean to actually have freedom from oppression According to Isaiah. Two, the second idea what it means for us if Jesus really is the fulfillment of that promise. If he is the one who breaks bondage, what does it mean that we have freedom now in Jesus? And finally, how this freedom supplies us with a living hope. So that's kind of our, our roadmap through this, these two verses this morning freed from oppression, our freedom in Jesus, and what it means to have a living hope. So let's dive in first. What does Isaiah mean when he's talking about their freedom from oppression? Verse 3 says you have uh, increased the joy of the nation. They rejoice before you for, which is the why. Why? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, that is the yoke, the staff and the rod that is used to burden and beat and oppress God's people, Isaiah is saying, has been broken. Question, do you know what a yoke is? I'm a city boy and I do because I, you know, read a book occasionally. Um, This is a picture of a yoke, okay? When it comes to livestock, I think that's up there. The, the bar across the middle that ties together these two working animals. Horses, oxen, donkeys are yoked together in order to pull a plow or a wagon. If you know more about animals and I'm getting that wrong, just email me later. Isaiah is equating God's people, in this case, to beasts of burden. They're work animals, essentially, who are being forced to wear a heavy yoke and pull a heavy load. And throughout all the Old Testament, we see this cycle amongst God's people where God promises and then he provides. And then the people flourish and they live in peace and comfort and then often drift into complacency where they forget what God has done for them and what he's told them. And in their complacency, they drift towards idolatry and and, and false worship and they forget what God's told them which is often met with then the discipline from the Lord. And in many cases, all through the Old Testament in this, this history of God's people, where God raises up a foreign army to come in and bring their armies to bear, sometimes in war, and sometimes drag them off into exile for a season. And so God's people, as Isaiah's writing this, this, this prophetic word for God's people, they would have felt the tangible Reality of this. They would have known exactly what he's talking about when he's talking about burdens and oppression. They know full well their own disobedience, their own shortcomings has led historically to their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers to this cycle of life and peace, and then falling away, and then oppression and discipline, only to cry out to the Lord again. So they would know exactly what what this would feel like. And as Isaiah's writing this, they as a people have been carrying a heavy weight, a burden on their shoulders for so long. And so the promise that the burden they've been carrying would be lifted, that has a tangible feel to it. You may have felt something like this. Now now maybe um, you've not been under the oppression of a foreign army. But, but have you ever just... Go with me here. Have you ever had a a, a a thing you had to carry? I'm talking about like you had to move someone's couch. Or those giant TVs that don't exist anymore. They do in my basement, but most people's, right? Friend asks you to move and like you move the heavy thing and when you set it down, what do you do when you set it down? Oh right? The burden is over, it's done. Uh, maybe maybe you've experienced that just from a from a physical standpoint. But, but maybe it's not an external physical burden. Have you ever had a super large project that you've been working on and it's taken forever and it's been hard to do and finally when you turn it in or you hit send or you give the presentation, you go, oh, like you just hope it's good, but it's, you almost don't care because you're just like, it's, it's done. It's over. Right? And maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just something that's just emotionally heavy. It's the relationship, the struggle that's just been a, a weight for so long. And then finally, if you've experienced this by God's grace, finally there's some resolution, there's some healing. You can take that deep breath. And it's almost like in all those scenarios, it's almost like you, you stand six inches taller because just, the weight's not there anymore. Isaiah is saying, God's people rejoice because the burden on them has been broken. And look at the two other pictures there, not just the yoke, but he uses this language. Isaiah says, the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. Now, now, the staff and the rod can be tools of someone tending to animals. You might think of the picture in Psalm 23 of the shepherd. The tools of the shepherd are a rod and a staff. Uh, typically, the, the rod tends to be more of like a club. And the staff tends to be more of a, of a thin, long pole, sometimes with a, a hook on the end, a shepherd's crook. The staff is used to kind of guide the animal along, tapping it on the sides. No, no, stay on the path. The rod tends to be used to protect against outside threats, but under an oppressive master or under a, an evil or a bad shepherd, the staff doesn't gently guide, but it wraps at the shoulder harshly. And under an oppressive master, rather than directing righteous aggression outward to protect, it's often turned inwardly to harm and abuse. And Isaiah says, this burden that you carry, this this staff that's been used to keep you in line, the rod that's been used to keep you subservient and afraid, these are broken, Isaiah says, at the coming of the promised Son. And he says they're broken... As, in the day of, as on the day of Midian, which prompts the question when we're reading God's Word, what is the day of Midian? Now, Isaiah is speaking of the day of Midian's defeat, which we can read about in the book of Judges. You don't have to turn there. Let me give you a brief synopsis. Judges chapter 6 through 8 tells us the story of the Midianites who were oppressing God's people. In fact, God's people had, been, had done evil in the sight of the Lord And so he raised up Midian to deliver uh, and delivered Israel, excuse me, into their hands. God was using the Midianites to discipline his people who had become wayward. In verse 6 of chapter 6 of Judges, it says this And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. They were depressed and broken because of what Midian had done to them. And the people of Israel. Judges 6 says, cried out for help to the Lord. So here's a people who had disregarded God. They'd grown comfortable in His His kindness and in His grace and had disregarded Him. So God brings about uh, some some discipline to, to draw them back. And here they are underneath the hand of the Midianites for their own doing and they cry out to God. And what does God do? He's merciful with them. In chapter 7 then we read, and into chapter 8, how God raised up as his mercy to them a young man named Gideon. And Gideon being raised up as a deliverer of sorts to to lead God's people out of bondage and into freedom. And we read as we go through Judges uh, 6 through 8, how God dwindled down. Gideon had an army of almost 32,000 men, soldiers. And God dwindled that down to just a few hundred. And with trumpets and clay jars and swords, they defeated an army of approximately 135,000 soldiers of the Midianites. And when I say defeated, it was utter and complete devastation for Midian. I'd encourage you, if you're, if you're interested in a little like uh, war game theory, go read Judges 6, 7, and 8, how God uses clay pots and trumpets and then swords to literally rout a nation with just a few hundred soldiers. So when Isaiah says that the Lord, in sending the Messiah, has broken the yoke and the staff and the rod of the oppressor, as on the day of Midian, he's giving a picture of total and complete deliverance. Don't miss that. What Isaiah is holding out as a promise of the coming Messiah is that he will free his people from all of their chains, from all of their oppressors, by defeating them entirely. And so just as he clearly defeated the Midianites by the hand of Gideon, he will defeat all the oppressors of God's people by the hand of the Son. So the coming Messiah brings freedom from oppression. That's what Isaiah is painting the picture of here in the defeat of Midian is the utter destruction of all their oppressors. And this is where we can start to understand what this freedom from oppression means for us. If Jesus is this promised son who is coming, then he's bringing that freedom not just to ancient Israel against the Midianites, he's bringing that freedom to us, all those who believe in him, who have faith in him. We live on this side of Christ's first advent. Israel was waiting for their Messiah to come to them. We have him here. We are the recipients of all of his work. We are the recipients of his completed work of bringing freedom. Which leads to our second point this morning. This is our, what is our freedom now in Christ? We can understand what Isaiah was talking about in bringing freedom that comes with the Messiah. Well, what does that mean for us? See, this idea of a yoke being used is not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus himself uses this language in Matthew chapter 11. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be on the screen as well. Jesus is teaching the crowd that had gathered. And starting in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That means all of you who are carrying a heavy burden. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is drawing this distinction between His yoke and the yokes or burdens that we have upon our shoulders. Now, as I said, you you might not be in bondage to a foreign nation like Midian. But the reality is we struggle under the weight of our own sin. And Satan, our oppressor, entices us and leads us with a staff toward wickedness in our broken and disordered desires, which are sinful. And then, rather than promising the good that the temptation offers, he beats us and shames us when we follow through and act on that sinful desire. So the effect for us Under the weight and the burden and the yoke of sin is brokenness and bondage and shame. This is what we carry in and of ourselves. And Jesus comes to us and says, all these burdens you carry, the striving you are doing yourself to free yourself from your chains, all of the guilt and the shame that you have and you keep on your shoulders and around your neck, Jesus says, give it to me, give it to me. And fulfilling the promise from Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus breaks the yoke of sin. He breaks the curse of sin that sits on your shoulders. And He breaks the power of shame that remains. And He invites us to instead take His yoke upon our shoulders. Take His life for our life. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light, He says. He has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves. Perhaps you're familiar with this picture of the shepherd from Psalm 23, right? The famous psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verse 4 of Psalm 23, the psalmist says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus yoke. The the rod and the staff of a good shepherd, tools in the hands of evil to do remarkable harm, but in the hands of a good shepherd, a gentle master, actually are the things that enable flourishing. They give us comfort and security. Think about that. Just as Israel's freedom from Midian was swift and complete, so in Christ Jesus, we are utterly and completely freed. I know we talk about this and we know this and we're like, yes, Jake, I've heard that gospel message before. Let me say it again for the people in the back. Not just legitimately in the back, by the way. Hi, everyone in the back. In Christ Jesus, we are, we are utterly and completely freed from sin. We are no longer under its curse. We are rescued from the oppression of Satan and his works and effects. And I wonder if sometimes we find ourselves worried or anxious or lacking hope that it might be possible we've just forgotten how just how completely Christ's redemption has gone. Marty asked it last week, is it possible that we've somehow held on to the idea that we are still under a yoke of slavery. Yes, yes, we know Jesus paid for our sins, but, and that we've got to somehow work our way out from underneath the burden ourselves. And at the risk of stretching this illustration a little too far, I think it's possible that we willingly look to other yokes and other staffs and other rods to help us. Right? We feel crushed under the weight of our own sin, our own brokenness, our own hopelessness. And not just our own sin, but like we bear the, the marks and the, the weight and the shame sometimes of other sins against us. And we are often overwhelmed under the weight of all of that. But not taking Jesus at his word, we move from yoke to yoke, burden to burden. We try something else, anything else, seeking approval and worth from someone else. We try to ease our own pain by self-medicating. We seek to soothe our own insecurities by seeking attention, whether personally or digitally, all while subjecting ourselves to just another cruel master who does not seek our good. And then we too often end up hearing the good news of Jesus and maybe trusting him. We live with the But we live with the weight of the already canceled shame still hanging on our shoulders. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for this, but I can't get rid of it. Which often for us is a source of hopelessness. We forget or we don't really know the extent of the freedom that is ours in Christ. That we are free from sin and its bondage. That we are freed from the curse and all of its shame that we are freed from the yoke of slavery to our past. And in its place, we now are yoked, tied, united to Christ. See, Jesus is the good shepherd who doesn't add burdens, but relieves them. Jesus doesn't add striving, but offers rest in our weariness. Jesus doesn't offer shame, but forgives our sin and freedom from our shame. And who by his completed work, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection, he cancels our curse and kills our enemies. He's the one who makes it possible for right, to write, that there is therefore now in Christ Jesus no condemnation. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free fully and completely as on the day of Midian. And this is how freedom and hope are connected, which is point three this morning. This idea of we have a living hope. See, when the prospect of hope, or excuse me, when the prospect of freedom or the prospect of relief is small, hope is small. Look with me at First Peter chapter 1. It'll be on the screen as well. You don't have to turn there, but you can. The Apostle Peter, in his letters, is writing to a people who are under significant Persecution. They are fleeing from their homes. They are scattered. There's very little hope within their lifetime that the world is going to get better. And here's what Peter says to them. Uh, Hannah read it already this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though not for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that by God's great mercy, we are born again to a living hope. That we have an inheritance that's a promise that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is untouchable, and it is ours. He continues in verse 5, that we are by God's power guarded through faith for salvation. And then he says this, In this you rejoice, in what? though, Although for now, in this season, you've been grieved by various trials. He doesn't outline exactly what they are. He's just acknowledging right now, for you, life is hard. But we can rejoice in these things. Why? So that the genuine, te- uh, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it tested by fire, the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it is. We rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus, who's the object of our faith, that he will guard us and keep us. And even though we endure trials now, we will find him faithful when he comes again at his second advent to make all things new. See, sometimes we find ourselves anxious and hopeless because we still live under the burden and weight of the sin and shame that's already been canceled by Christ. Sometimes that does that to us. And sometimes, might I suggest, we find ourselves overwhelmed and hopeless because while we give lip service to the idea that there will be a glorious future promise fulfilled, we live as if we don't actually believe that's going to happen. See, Peter says, you've been born again to a living hope. Hope can be a funny word. I found this definition uh, really helpful um, author Eugene Peterson has written a, a book on discipleship called "Along Obedience in the Same Direction," and in it he defines hope in this way that I think, for me, remarkably helpful. Uh, it's a little bit long, so so bear with me. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It's not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. Love that. He continues, and hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Let me read that part again. Hope is a confident, alert expectation that God will do what He said He will do. It's an imagination. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It's a willingness to let God do it His way and in His time. So if we want to experience real hope, then it means we live in light of the freedom bought for us by Christ and applied to us as we have faith in Him. In the last part of Isaiah 9, verse 5, our passage today, I want to look at it briefly as we close. Isaiah says this, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's an interesting picture. Boots and bloody uniforms. See, the picture here is the, the boots of every enemy soldier. Their uniform covered in the blood of the peoples they have oppressed. All of this now, which was once a a marker, a sign of their strength, like numbers of boots on the ground, the regalia and and the, the status of them as mighty warriors, all that represented their strength and their status and their power is now nothing more than kindling to fuel the furnaces that will now give warmth to God's people. There is a completeness to this, an assurance that victory is won. As we said when we began our Advent series a couple weeks ago, in all the busyness and hustle of Christmas, we have an opportunity to slow down just a little bit, to take a little longer look at the glory of Jesus, to be challenged to consider the state of our hearts, to consider if we truly are able to rejoice. Are we really taking joy in Christ? Or are we taking joy in other things. It's an opportunity to be reminded that while it's sometimes hard to have hope when we remain here, when we live underneath the bondage that Christ has already set us free from, not just freed from our sin, but also born again to a living hope that all of this is now ours because God the Son came, wrapped Him in human flesh to be our Prince of Peace. My prayer for us is that we would continue to rejoice in Jesus, to rejoice in the hope that is ours through the freedom that we have in Him. And so maybe if you've walked with Jesus for a while, the tendency for us is for hearts to get a little hard and crusty. Maybe there's a, we've forgotten a bit of, of what it means that we're actually freed from our sin and from our shame, that we no longer have to walk in it. We need to more fully believe uh, what Paul said in Romans 8 was actually accurate, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, my prayer is that your picture and your hope in that would awaken a bit this morning. But maybe, but maybe you've been content up to this point to just live your life underneath the burden of your own sin, your own righteousness, your own way of thinking. And maybe today, today might be the day where you need to understand and you're given the grace to understand that it's through Christ that that burden is broken. And there's a surrendering to Jesus. So we'd like to offer, uh, Marty will be in the back. Um, I'll be over here. There's men and women here who would love to pray with you and talk with you. If that's you this morning, you're wrestling through some of that and, and any in any, you know, where along that spectrum as we take time here to, to come to the communion table, uh, we want to offer ourselves uh, to you for that. So that our hearts would be filled with rejoicing and with hope that we have freedom fully and completely in Christ and that He is promised to come again and to bring it all to completion. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even though so often hope in this life is fleeting, there is a a surety we can have in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming at the right time to die for sinners. Would you renew our, our hope in you? would we see with, with clear eyes the reality of our condition without you and the beauty of grace of our condition and who we are now in you? Holy Spirit, would you be both our counselor and our comforter that we would trust you in our confession of sin, that we would trust you to comfort and strengthen our hearts. Work in us as we come to the communion table now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.